And welcome to the Digging In Podcast with the Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Janet Atkinson, and this week we are joined by Brent Hayden. He is the attorney at the law firm of Hayden and Colburn, one of their attorneys on staff there in Columbia, Missouri. And of course, you have a uh, great connection with the Missouri Farm Bureau because you also have a great connection with Missouri agriculture. So tell us just a bit about yourself before we dig into some of the details that have been going on recently. Well, I work as a lawyer in Columbia. Uh, my wife and I and our partner, Caleb Colbert, all have a firm here together. And um, so and my wife, Connie's um, the other attorney and partner with us. And um, we just do a lot of agricultural work and farm and ranch work and help farmers and ranchers and organizations around the state uh, deal with the various issues they've got there. I'm originally from, I grew up right on the Audrey and Callaway County line uh, and went to high school in Mexico and um, came up in a, a cow-calf operation, quarter horse operation there. And um, But, you know, the focus of my practice is largely built around helping producers deal with and navigate regulatory issues and, and landowners and also um, helping landowners and organizations deal with over-regulation and governmental issues, and then also, uh, I think what we're talking about today, to deal with imminent domain challenges and, and property rights issues and try to make sure that uh, rural Missourians are able to continue to utilize and use their land the way they want to, rather than the way somebody else tells them they have to. Well, it has certainly been an issue that, uh, needless to say, you've got your work, and Missouri Farm Bureau has your work cut out for you. Um the issue has been definitely in the news cycle for a number of years, but here just in the last month or so, Garrett had a, the chance, President Garrett Hawkins had the chance to address the PSC in Missouri, uh, all related and it kind of ties back to the Grain Belt Expressway. Give us some background there, if you would. Yeah, so the Grain Belt Express project is a proposed project to run large, um, it's a 345 kilovolt uh, transmission line project, and three, a 345 kilovolt line is a big line. Um, it's a proposal to build a line all the way from western Kansas over to Indiana, uh, with it crossing in part through northern Missouri, uh, kind of generally on a line from about St. Joe over to just south of Hannibal. Uh, and it's not a perfectly straight line, but it crosses through the county sort of along that line. Um, from Buchanan County all the way over to Rawls, and in the middle it's going to cross Caldwell and Randolph and Cheriton and Monroe County. Uh, that project was originally proposed all the way back in, uh, well, really started in 2012. Representatives of the company started to sort of come around and begin to discuss the project. Um, originally, this project was proposed and and was the, the, you know the underlying ownership was a company out of Texas called Cleanline um, and they eventually sold their interest to a company called Invenergy which is a a large private company out of Chicago uh, that is not publicly traded um, but um, it's it, you know they do a lot of they build a lot of wind towers they build a lot of solar um, they have not in the past much before been in the transmission line business, but they did buy this project and gotten engaged that way. And so the issue in going all the way back to 2012 was obviously the, you know, the only way they were going to be able to build this line from their perspective was to use eminent domain as necessary if they, if they couldn't get consensual landowner deals to be able to cross Missouri. And so um, 
originally they had applied to the Missouri Public Service Commission, which that's the entity that would, you know, essentially licenses a business as a utility so that they have eminent domain authority along with state statute. Um, they had approached the the PSC to give them a permit. And the first round, uh, I think it was back in 2014, um, my memory is getting a little long on this because it has <laughs> taken so long. But in 2014, originally, the Missouri Public Service Commission told them no, they couldn't have a permit. And that's because they weren't going to drop any power into the state of Missouri. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just literally no electricity was going to come in. They were going to cross over and go on through to Illinois and into Indiana. And they and their, their big dream is they want to tie into Indiana because that's where the eastern power grid comes in. And they want to tie these back to large wind farms in you know, extreme western Kansas that has very high consistent wind rates. Um, after they failed to get their permit the first go around back in 14, they came back in 2017. And, and I was involved at that point as counsel for Farm Bureau um, in, in challenging their attempt to get a license and, and, uh, that time around. And so they're uh, going get a permit. And so... Um, you know, we and that was for what we called the kind of the main line of the project that was going to stretch across northern Missouri. Ultimately, the state did award them a permit. Um, there are un- ongoing challenges with certain um, county governments that they and some of the counties they want to cross because Cheriton County is in a lawsuit with them right now um, because the county has said you can't have permission to cross, and so they've sued the counties at that level. But, but also they came back then after receiving their permit after significant litigation back in 17 to cross through northern Missouri. Um, in 2022, they came back and announced that they were going to run a project, a spur essentially, off of a, a station in Monroe County down into Callaway County. They're going to cross parts of Audrain County and then come into northern Callaway County to tie into a different piece of the grid. And they called that the Tiger Connector. So now we're dealing with a second and newer project that's sort of a subset of the first project. First project runs east to west across Missouri, and now they want to come off with a spur in Monroe County that runs south across Audra and Callaway County into Callaway County. The timing on this, um, both from a legal and political perspective, was interesting in that in, in 2022, Farm Bureau and, and our other ag allies um, from other ag associations in the state, Missouri Cattlemen, have pushed hard on this, and 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 certainly a lot of producers and a lot of folks and uh, elected officials had pushed to get some reform on the use of eminent domain by these sorts of projects, which which generally are called merchant transmission lines. Merchant transmission lines are the kind of the new wave of transmission line construction where you have private companies who come in and say, we'll build the transmission line and then, you know, we'll receive a fee to transmit electricity from other people across the lines that we own. And of course it's, you know, we're, it, we really are in a, a little different world than we were historically, you know, our eminent domain laws were built out in the early 1900s through the 1930s when you had early electrification to really promote and allow for retail type power, by which I mean the you know running lines from house to house, from, so that everybody could have electricity. And of course, nobody likes eminent domain, but the historic social bargain was that, well, you know, we we deal with this because it, it's what it takes to get everybody electrified. And we really are in a different kind of era now. The issue is not are people going to have access to electricity in their home. These lines are about the 
transmission of massive amounts of what they call wholesale level power. And so it, it does, it ties into complicated questions about the cost of electricity, but it is not one of these things where if we build this or don't build it, you know, folks aren't going to have access to electricity in their operation. And that's the frustration, you know, within Farm Bureau policy, obviously, the frustration that was there to say, this looks an awful lot like the same kinds of things we contested going all the way back to 2004 and earlier when the Kilo case first came down out of Connecticut with the Supreme Court, where they said, hey, you, the, our, our federal Supreme Court, unfortunately, ruled that you could use eminent domain for entirely private enterprises and purposes. It was okay for the government to authorize that. And obviously, landowner groups and agricultural groups had a massive problem with that because it allows groups to just companies to come in and say, "Hey, we've got a we've got a great business idea. We ought to be able to take this land under an eminent domain theory and use it for our purposes." And often, politicians find that sort of thing irresistible because they just can't, you know, the promise of the promise of money using somebody else's property often proves irresistible. But it but to combat to combat that, you know, there were reforms passed in Missouri all the way back in 2006. Uh, to try to provide extra protections for eminent domain use. One of the big things we got back in 06 was a uh, a 50% escalator clause within state law that said if you'd owned your property for more than 50 years, then you got 50% more in the case of a taking. But in 2022, we also, um, ag groups pushed hard for House Bill 2005, which passed and provided some more protection against abuse for merchant transmission lines. One of the big things that law says is that if a line is going to pass through the state, got to be capable of dropping a proportionate amount of power into into Missouri, as a, you know, for a proportion to its entire length. So if you have a thousand mile line running out of the west, 250 miles of it goes through Missouri, then it's got to be capable of dropping a quarter of the power that'll come across that line into our power pools, so that we don't just become a super highway for electricity. And it also added some protections that all ag land that gets taken for that sort of line would get 150% payout. The only problem with that bill relative to this current problem was that it didn't go into effect. Like most, and this is typical for most statutes in Missouri, they don't become effective after they're passed in the spring until the end of August in that same year. Well, and, and, and anything that, that went before that was going to be grandfathered in. So then Grain Belt, right after the legislative, legislative session ended in 22, announced this Tiger Connector project. And obviously that that did not go down very smooth that, you know, right after we'd worked through a good faith political process without any knowledge that this was definitely going to happen. And then the announcement was made. And I think a lot of people felt kind of blindsided by that. But um, that that's that's sort of the background that it builds up to the hearings that we've just had. They they came back in the summer of 22 and, and applied. They've got to they've got to get an amendment to their permit. Uh, they've applied for an amended permit to be able to run a line out of Monroe County, across Audrain County, into Northern Callaway County that they call the Tiger Connector. And so the hearings that we've just held in the last month and uh, that, um, well, a month and a half, we did them in early June, uh, but uh, and that Garrett Hawkins testified at those hearings, that's that's what those hearings are about. And a decision hasn't been made yet, but that, that's the decision that's pending uh, was from the arguments we've had about whether they should permit that additional spur on the line. When do you expect the PSC to make that ruling? I mean, is there a time scale that they've even shared? No, there's not a, there's not a required date um, that, you know, they have to make the decision by X day. I think it will probably be made in the next 60 days or so from, I mean, so we're, you know, we're talking here in late July. Um, 
my guess is the decision will be made by sometime into September or October. Could be earlier, but I think it'll probably be made by then. Maybe not. Um, you can go broke betting on when courts and the administrative bodies will act. Sometimes they surprise me, but that's that's about that's my best guess on when they'll be done. So, and I'm just going to briefly recap here. So, the Greenbelt Expressway initially coming across the state of Missouri to take electricity out of Missouri over to, or not take electricity out of Missouri, but carry it across Missouri to eastern states. Then they didn't get what they wanted. So now, oh, wait, we're going to drop some electricity in Missouri. And then right. that now they want to come back and they want to do this, the Tiger Connector as well. What are what are they, I guess, where did the Tiger Connector come from? What are they getting out of this now additional thing that they weren't even planning on to begin with? Well, so it kind of depends on whether, I mean, if you accept their rationale or you take a, which I do, a slightly more cynical view of what actually happened here. I mean, they, to be able to say they dropped power into Missouri, I mean, they, they, they're selling a, a, a modicum of power to a few very small, well, they're, they're selling it into some municipal power pools in the state of Missouri. So some small towns, I mean, this, and this is the way they try to create political leverage. They said, well, we're going to sell power to a very, a, some small towns that have municipal pools in Missouri at well below fair market rates. So see, we're, and, and by doing that, they're saying, see, we're going, we're being good for Missouri because we're, we're helping you out at below fair market rate. Um, they, and so that was, <laughs> that, and that goes all the way back to the original project after 14, when they tried to get, they came back for their second round of permitting in 17, they made that move and sort of have trumpeted that. Now looking at those numbers, Think those numbers are uncertain i think those numbers are tiny i i don't think uh, and and so there's a lot of issues with that but even putting that aside that was sort of the rationale they had a second problem though developed for them which and it sort of frankly surprised those of us who were who've been watching this process but illinois gave them a very rough ride on their permitting process they had much more trouble in illinois interestingly enough getting permits than they did in missouri or kansas and so when they hit that roadblock in Illinois, um, obviously you get, they have to cross Illinois to get to Indiana to be able to tie into the Eastern grid. I think this is me. I mean, I, we are speculating somewhat, but reading this from the outside, I think that, you know, that created some major business risks for them. And so they eventually came around to, as a sort of plan B, they decided, okay, if we can't get through Illinois, rather than go on east across Missouri through Monroe and Rawls County to cross into Illinois, we're going to tie this spur out of Monroe County down into Callaway County to be able to tie into some of the, the grid that comes, that runs back out and out through Missouri and to push some power even further south of Missouri into the Tennessee Valley and some other places. And so I, I think that was the real reason. Now, since that was, you know, the summer of 22, that all sort of came out since then Illinois has now approved them. And so they're now, you know, the company Greenbelt, sort of looking at, okay, we'll just do both. We'll, we'll come down and we'll tie into Missouri at in the, in Northern Callaway County. And then we'll also go on out across Illinois. Um, so I, but I think that's the reason that happened. I frankly think that if Illinois had not been difficult for them on the permitting side they may have never proposed this connector project as a second spur on the line uh but now you know 
they've done both. And who knows? I mean, I guess there's a chance that there's a chance that it never does end up getting built because of that either. Although, you know, I, it's a, it's it's pretty irresistible for these companies because they have massive federal incentives, both for you know direct and indirect federal incentives from the tax side and the direct subsidy side, in both the wind and solar segment and just sort of this green energy segment in general. I mean, they're essentially being paid directly or indirectly on that side of the equation to to build these projects, and then they're also going to make money on these projects on the other side of that. And so, you know, I until until the Fed stop shoving money to them to do it i think the odds that they'll stop they'll stop having an incentive to build these kind of projects is going to be low and i think we'll continue to see this issue has any construction at either end even started uh no no meaningful construction no i mean they they definitely you know they are out they've got survey crews in the field and they're and they're negotiating with private land owners already and they certainly have bought a lot of they've bought easements over some landowners voluntarily i mean quote unquote voluntarily i mean it's always it's always with the risk of an imminent domain lawsuit hanging over your head anyway so i mean i think right. it's, a, it's an open question as to how voluntary is that sort of voluntary buyout um but they certainly have obtained easements without taking some landowners to court they've also they have taken some landowners to court already in missouri and elsewhere um so um that but as far as actual big c construction have they started construction i I think the answer is not yet um you know we've been hearing projections that it's imminent for a while now but um i i i mean i i it's not that surprising i mean until they cleared up their regulatory situation in every state along the line it's not surprising that they wouldn't have poured a lot of concrete because if you're never going to get to build the rest of it then um, it's obviously a big investment money-wise for them. Uh, now that they've got, now that they've got their Illinois issue cleared up, I, I, I have no idea how far away construction is, but it's probably closer and going to be sooner than, than it was before for sure. So what's your suggestion to those who own ground in this pathway or who are maybe facing a different kind of similar challenge elsewhere? So yeah, for pri- with private landowners, um, it's kind of a, a there's two tips of the spear here we've got to work on. I mean, in the long run, we've got to have some more reform on our eminent domain process in the state of Missouri. I mean, I'm 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 convinced of that as a personal opinion, but also Farm Bureau and and our you know other ag groups and ag allies in the state of Missouri have significant policy that call for reform to end eminent domain abuse and to make sure the landowners are protected. Um, one one big issue we have right now is that not only is eminent domain available for the lines in Missouri, but as the law is written now, eminent domain, I believe from reading the statutes, can be could be used to even take land to site wind towers or solar panels themselves. So you know if a company company came along and said, hey, we want to this looks like a great spot for a solar farm, I think under state law right now, they could take that land. And I, and if, if they came along and said, this looks like a great spot for a wind farm, I think they could take that land. We have not seen that as a, in a matter, as a matter of practice. And I, and in wind, it's a little tougher because those, those facilities have to be so big and so diffuse. I think normally, you know, rather than 
take a big piece. They'd rather just go down the road and try to negotiate with another, you know, private landowner, which is fine. But with solar, where you've got these very dense facilities where, you know, you can build, you can take 80 acres and just build one big facility on that. I'm concerned that in the long run, this, the temptation to take the next piece of land to expand that farm using eminent domain is going to, you know, it's going to be irresistible for these solar companies. I, I'm, I'm worried about scenarios where they would come in and say, oh, this, you know, we've, we, we got, we, we leased or bought an 80 acre square uh, voluntarily, you know, that's fine. Built a solar farm on there. That's fine. But five years in or eight years in, they say, well, to really make this thing cost effective and make it run right, we need to expand it, you know, another hundred to 120 acres. We need the 40 North of it. Well, that next 40 North of that 80 may belong to a, a family that doesn't want to do it. And at that point, I don't know whether they'll, when, and who knows, they might use it even to do the initial siting, but definitely I could see solar companies well, as this model becomes more mature saying, you know, we've got our 80 acre piece here, but we need to expand. So now we're going to take your 40 to make our expansion go. We had language that was running through the legislature last year uh, to ban that practice. Farm Bureau supported it and, and worked hard on it. A lot of times things like that take two or three years to kind of get momentum and make them happen. I tell, I tell you all that, though, because step one of what can, what can landowners do and really what can all of us do in agriculture and for landowners that care about private property rights got to do what we've always done which is stick together and really be aggressive political advocates and obviously that's what a farm bureau membership for groups farm bureau and, and our other ag groups that really get in there and push hard this way that it's so important to belong is because it allows us to have a collective voice in the political process because look i mean we've we, <laughs> It will be very hard for us to outpunch any of these companies in terms of money. I mean, the, the Greenbelt project is a multi-billion dollar project. So, and they, and they throw plenty of money around in the political process. We may not be able to meet that, but we, but we, we, can, ad, we can advocate and we can vote. We live in Missouri and we do elect these elected representatives. And so we've got to be engaged politically, both as individuals, but also collectively through Farm Bureau and our, our ag associations and our voice that way to say enough is enough. You know, we're going to we, we've got to have reform to state statutes to make sure that landowners are protected. So that's the big picture thing that anybody, whether you're a landowner facing the issue today or a landowner who may face it tomorrow, because that's the reality. That's what we all need to be doing. Stay focused stay and keep our eyes on the prize. And that's hard for people because, you know, People are busy. We got other things. It's one of the frustrating things about modern agriculture is you just want to get in there, you know, help feed feed the world and do your job. And you end up between bureaucratic problems and political advocacy. You know, you end up you have this huge drag on your time and emotional energy to do that. But unfortunately, that is the price of liberty in a in a democracy. We have to stay after it on that front. Absolutely. Now, for individual for individual landowners who are specifically facing this issue the issue i mean you, you really you want to know your rights i mean there are it, it's very frustrating because they're at the end of the day if a company like Greenbelt or any utility in the state right now wants to take your land for under an eminent domain taking there is very little that you can ultimately do to completely stop them from doing it but you can make sure that i mean there are certain you know there are are rights you have in terms of trying to fight where like the specific siting on your pro on your property, for example, you can at least offer suggestions on where the line should go in the alternative to where they want to put it. 
And then you can, and then you also can get in there and, and make sure that if they are going to take it, they pay you every dime and hopefully then more of what you deserve for what they've taken. And so, um, you want to get educated about the law. That is where, and of course, for attorneys, it always sounds like we're, you know, looking for a, our, the full employment act for lawyers, but it is where a good attorney who does eminent domain work can make a big difference. Um, at least in terms of the underlying ultimate amount of money you receive is to get somebody who um, does eminent domain work, knows what they're doing and can get in there and negotiate with the company for you and really try to maximize your price and also get as many terms and conditions changed as you can to, to hopefully at least get it to be something you can live with. Um, this this line's tough though. Easy road to make it. <laughs> What's that? Sorry. If they're going to take it, you're not going to make it easy for them to take it. Right. Right. And you've got to make sure that you make them write the biggest check that you can get them to write. I mean, yeah. the, uh, this line's tough though. I mean, it is very frustrating. Um, and I, you know, I've had to be there with a lot of my own clients and have that hard conversation of, look, we can't, we absolutely cannot, we can't just completely stop it and make them go somewhere else. In fact, by the nature of the permitting process, they can't go more than 500 yards different than the, the line they've proposed. Even the state basically says you have to go there. Uh -huh. And so there's only so much that can be done on that. I mean, you know, look, if we were really going to do this fairly, because this is the, the, the balance we have to have, obviously, and, and I don't think anybody in ag is not trying to shut down other people's progress or keep other people from having power, whatever it is. But when they run a 345 kilovolt line across these massive poles with these lines hanging off of them, these are not, you know, small residential poles running up behind the barn. These are massive, massive towers and structures overhead. You know, in a, they, I mean, there's a lot of things they should have to be doing, and, and we've floated some of these. I mean, they should have to bury these things. Of course, they'll say, well, that's massively expensive, and that may be. But, of course, if this really – they will tout the benefits of this to society generally. This is great for everybody, and that's fine. But if it really is great for everybody, then really everybody ought to pay the cost on that. I mean, if you're going to have this as a collectivized resource, um, because because they really want it both ways here, which is to pay – some pittance for these rights relative to how much money they'll make on it from the landowner on the one hand. And then on the other side, they'll trumpet all these public benefits of cheaper power to everybody else. Well, and everybody else in public will say, that's great. I'll take that cheaper power. And they bear no burden. If you would say, well, actually we have to bury the, you have to bury the line and we understand that'll make it more expensive. That will come down in higher rates, but that'll also mean that everybody is bearing the burden of this project. I mean, a lot more of my clients, most of them could live with this thing much better if they would bury it, much like pipelines. Pipelines are also a nuisance when they're being constructed. But, you know, three years on, five years on after construction, people aren't nearly as bitter about a pipeline because you don't see it and it's not in your way. Mm -hmm. These things, you know, if you're if you're you'll live with them for your lifetime, foreseeably, from, for any producer that's that's looking at these things right now. Yeah. So. And those are the kind of political changes we still need to advocate for. I, I say that, though, because I, I do not want to undersell for, for individual private landowners, you know, even if you maximize your payout, even if you got paid a lot more than what it's worth. It, it, for, for most people, like it, it never feels like you're adequately compensated for what you're forced to live with compared to what we're doing for everybody else. Well, Brent, if anybody had any questions, would want to reach out to you guys um, having troubles of their own, how could they get in touch with y'all? So, um, yeah, I mean, we're in Columbia. We, we are, we've got our website, it's showmelaw.com, www.showmelaw.com. Um, 
my email address is runs under that same. It's Brent at showmelaw.com. They can call our office. Uh, we're at five, seven, three, four, four, two, three, five, three, five. Um, but, uh, any of those ways reach out, we'd be happy to talk. And, um, that's, that's where we can be found. Well, I'm sure we will talk again sometime here in the next few months uh, after the PSC issues their decision on that. Now, again, we've been talking with Brent Hayden. He's the, an attorney at the law firm of Hayden and Colburn out of Columbia, Missouri. Of course, we've been talking about the Greenbelt Expressway as well as the Tiger Connector. You have been listening to Dig It In with Missouri Farm Bureau.